Welcome everybody to episode 37 of the Holt Majority. Today's question, how can we better read and consume the news? Because I know that the way that we consume information, the way that information is thrown at us, the way that our media works, it's a big challenge to trying to resolve polarization, to trying to build this hopeful majority. And who better to have on today than John Gable, who co-founded a media company called All Sides. And what All Sides essentially does is it has a tool that allows you to assess bias of different stories and allows you to understand the political lean of stories sound useful? I agree. And I think it's important to hear from John. As always, if you're new to this episode, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, we release conversations here on this platform because we want to have nuanced conversations. We want to fight outrage. We think that most people in this country want a world in which we can listen to each other, disagree productively, understand to try and solve our problems. It's about putting people over party. It's about putting our problems above our politics. It's about actually solving and making progress in society. And usually for every conversation, we have this monologue that precedes the interview because I think there's something to usually dive into. I think this conversation speaks for itself because John and I go everywhere. We talk about how we should construct our media diets. What does it actually mean to consume news in a quote unquote unbiased way? What are the political leans of different outlets? And yes, we do a quick bingo game where we go over whether or not CNN is left, right, or middle, whether or not Fox News, where does it fall on the political spectrum? Where does MSNBC fall on the political spectrum? John Gable and all sides have amassed thousands of people's reviews of these different news articles, and I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. Here's the last thing that I'll leave you with before we get into the, into the conversation, and that is about the agency we have as people. About the agency we have as people. What I mean by that is... We often look at the problem of division in our politics, of, of polarization. We look at, man, the news companies are corrupt, and this is corrupt, or that's corrupt, and the establishment, blah, blah. The fact is that we actually as people have tremendous power in shaping the behavior of our leaders. We as people have tremendous power in actually shaping the business models of our companies. Because here's the secret. The models that drive our partisan politics, the models that drive our politics, they're driven partially by our ability to feed into them. The reason why our media partially is so incredibly divided is because they know that we as people are going to click on the junk food. They know that we as people are going to click on the clickbait headlines. I know that to make this podcast grow, we should be doing a bunch of clickbait because that's what causes growth. And what's fascinating to all sides and tools like all sides, whether you like the tool or not, that's not the point of the episode. The point of the episode is I wanted to present this conversation because it allows you to understand one way in which you can consume the news in a more potentially productive way. But what's good about these tools is they're empowering us as people. They're giving us agency. They're giving us this sense and belief that we actually have the ability to start shaping the way that the algorithms work. That if we can actually start calling out bias in the news, that suddenly, suddenly you might have a shot at shifting consumer behavior and patterns of how these companies operate, that the way that we show up to the polls, if we're rewarding candidates and leaders that are more open-minded, that are more ideologically diverse, that are capable of disagreeing productively, that actually want to solve our problems, that suddenly we might have a shot at shaping political behavior. So all of that to say, I think this is one of those conversations in a long series of conversations we've had on this show about how we as people can empower ourselves to create the world that we actually want to see, a world that isn't necessarily less divided because division is inevitable, but a world in which we prioritize our capacity to solve problems, you know, a world in which we're relatively open-minded so that we can hear and give each other the chance to be better, a world in which we foster connection. Without further ado, here's a conversation with John Gable. John Gable, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir. That's good to be here. So for 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 the audience's context, I always like to be honest about when we're recording this. Um, we're recording this the morning after the Super Bowl. And I thought, well, hey, you know, Super Bowl, there's going to be a bunch of stories coming out. Of course, the entire world's going to be focused on Taylor Swift, John. But beyond that, I was like, we've got to talk about how people ought to sift through all this information, all the media, the news, everything that's going on. And... Uh, our team said, who better to talk to than the person that created something called All Sides? Now, before we even get into All Sides, could you talk to our listeners really quickly about what is the problem that All Sides is meant to solve? 
so I'm an old technology guy from Netscape Navigator, which I think some people don't even remember because they're all too young for it. But back I, in the 90s, I know it. I know, you know it. it. Yes. Well, you're you're more you're a geek like I am, so you might know stuff like that. But think of Netscape Navigator as the chat GPT for internet browsers. So that was the first web browser that everybody started to use. And um, basically the problem, I'm getting the story too much. So I'll just jump to the problem, which is it's actually our mission statement that we've had for many, many years, which is to free people from filter bubbles so they can better understand the world and each other. I came at it not from a really abridging standpoint, but really from more of a technology standpoint. Because way back in 97, when I was at Netscape and was the lead product manager for that web browser that, that is now think of Mozilla Firefox, we, I was concerned, I gave a speech where I was concerned that the internet, the way we get information online, that we were actually eventually train us to discriminate against each other in new ways that we would actually, it would actually pull us apart because in order to deal with that overwhelming information, we'd have to have something to filter it out and give it to us. And we now talk about filter bubbles. We now mm -hmm. talk about how we only see one side and other people see a different side and we we, we become overwhelmingly one-sided about everything to the extent that we can't stand other people. We think they're not just wrong, but they're evil. Yeah. But I started worrying about that in 1997, that that's where I thought the internet might eventually take us. And it's done that and a lot worse. And really all sides has developed from the day one to combat that problem, to really deliver the original promise of the internet, which we're not doing right now. That's fascinating. You know, so I brought up the Super Bowl because I wanted to jump right into how do we use all sides to look at Taylor Swift stories, but I'm gonna stop myself there for a quick second because you mentioned leading, being one of the, the people involved in the early tech boom in the 90s, right, which spawned this entire revolution that we're in today. And my question for you, and you got to this a little bit, is you mentioned that it led to these filter bubbles, that you thought about this problem of information discrimination, information flows in 1997. Now that you look back at it 23, 25 years later, do you think that the internet revolution in the 90s produced net good for society? when it comes to information? We, it's done a remarkably wonderful things. Um, there's a temptation for people to say it's all good and it's all bad. And that's just a little bit sloppy, but you and I are talking online right now because of the internet. And the idea, the promise of the internet, which we totally had back then, and I drank the Kool-Aid, which is what we used to say a lot, um, but totally committed to it is that with the internet, I'd have access to more information, better information I've ever had before so I can make better decisions. I'd also be able to access individual people from around the world. So I would know them not as a stereotype, but as individuals. And Manu, you and I have met each other many times in person, but a lot of the time we spent together has just been online. And a lot of people I know around the country has been online. And this is even before COVID. That is possible because of the internet. Technology itself, I don't think is either evil or bad or good. It's kind of how you use it. Mm -hmm. And it does empower things. It makes things possible. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's delivered on its promise in education and in so many different ways to really enable people to create whole economies, a whole new ways of value, a whole way, new ways of generating value so we can have money, so we can have assets and knowledge to be able to make more things and have more food and more people fed and all that stuff that has incredible value. But the negative is there too, which is really the business models that have made it worse. I did not predict. I just predicted that the flow of information would be dangerous and that it might put us in bubbles. I didn't use the word bubbles back then. Mm -hmm. Eli Parsa came up with that filter bubble terminology later. But um, it, it's, it's both. And the thing is, is in its current state, the negative of having us in these filter bubbles where we become angry at each other and divided. And these business models are encouraging people to get us to click more. And the best way to get us to click more is to get us angry at each other or emotionally involved to click or buy or vote or riot or yell in whatever direction that person wants us to do that. And so we're being manipulated mm -hmm. at a massive level. So that's but, a problem. But John, the question I have is like, you mentioned you've got this entire group of people that are working with you technologists that have drank the Kool-Aid, as you say, right? And you all are working on these products and you're thinking about building these business models. And what about, 
you or your thought process or the moment made you think that in 1997, we would have this problem of filter bubbles and the way that information flowed? Were you already thinking about the fact that these business models are are incentivizing people to opt into different tribes or shape behavior? What was it about that moment that allowed you to think about that? Yeah, I didn't understand the business models at all. What I was yeah. doing is I just read a book by Neil Postman okay. called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And essentially, mm -hmm. the, the very simple one line is that the medium drives the message. What he really described was what would happen to the news, what was happening to the news as it moved from the written word, which is kind of a linear, thoughtful, past, present, future medium of communication mm -hmm. to TV, which is very emotional and immediate. And he said, news quality is going to be awful. It's going to be very emotional. It's going to be very sensational. It's not going to be high quality. It's going to become a bunch of crap. He didn't say that word, but that's essentially yeah, what he was yeah, saying. Yeah. He felt the same way about education, too. He would have hated Sesame Street. And I think he did hate Sesame Street. It was already out yeah. back then. Um, but I thought back then, it's like, okay. Um, I'm At the time, I was doing an internet startup before joining Netscape. And I thought, well, what will, will the internet do to news? As news really moves to the internet, which it had not done yet in 97. And when yeah. everybody starts using it for all kinds of information, what will it do? And I thought about the attributes of the internet and how you navigate. And I saw that it's so overwhelming. You tend to look at, this is similar to that. I do a search about something similar. We now talk about a friend of a friend. And so we think of that person as a friend because they're a friend of a friend of mine. And so I saw that kind of metaphor type of thinking, that process, training us like a, like a, a great athlete, a great tennis player is trained, his muscles so trained to hit the forehand just right. Our brains are trained to think in terms of metaphor, and this is similar to that. And I thought that would lead to stereotypes and would lead us to discriminate mm -hmm. against each other in new ways. That's all I, I saw at that time. I think that definitely happened, but I think the, uh, some of the more extreme pieces of it, the ability to really manipulate people emotionally online and to really build business models, they're just kind of like junk food business models where you're just yeah. getting that little dopamine. I never, I had never considered any of that. Hmm. So I'm, I'm only going to bring this up because this is highly relevant to this specific moment, which is that you thought about this problem in 97. I was born in 98. And what I think about is as a baby of uh, that, that grew up with technology and then people that come after me, like my brother and sister that are literally digital natives, I think a lot about what the world would be like without the internet, right? Which is something that I'm sure sounds really funny and naive to you. And yet to me, it's like an interesting thought experiment. I'm like, man, you know, as you talk about some of the success of the internet, my friends and I often say, what if we just return to monkey, you know, because I think the human yeah. brain is focused oftentimes on thinking about the bad, right? So of course, there's the fact that you and I are connected through the internet. And yet, my instinct is, well, what about the disconnection that's occurring across the board? And so as I hear you talking about the implications of the tech boom in 97, I have to ask you, whether or not you've been thinking about the AI revolution happening right now and what you think the implications of the AI revolution are going to be on information. I think similar to the internet, it's both pro and con. There's a lot of great stuff with AI that I'm thrilled about. Uh, the mm. abilities that it can give us to enable and empower and enhance human experience, not by replacing humans, which I think is sometimes AI being used in bad ways, but to enable human beings to do what we do best, to be creative and make decisions on our own when we have good information. Like algorithms, or which I think was actually a bigger problem than people appreciated when they really started taking over search engines and social media. I was always thinking it was a horrible, scary thing that I think now people understand now. The good thing about AI is everybody's scared. <laughs> um, the bad thing about AI is people are like either pro-AI or anti-AI. I'm like, no, let's be pro-human and how yeah. to use the technology to move us forward, to have us connect with each other better. Hmm. Be, be pro-human. And and the funny thing about that is that the binary that you described in the AI debate, which is you're either for AI or against AI, is the same binary that you see existing on every news story. And that is my really crappy transition to introduce all sides, which is what we started this conversation <laughs> with, which, which is funny because you talk about all of these different stories and these different angles and the fact that we filter into our bubbles to look at stories in different and unique ways. And then you bring up this tool, right? And the idea the, about this tool when I was just surf, surfing it is that you get an understanding of the bias in these stories so that 
you know, let's say you read a story about AI, you can understand if it's from a pro AI source or not, you know, and you can get an understanding of the nuance involved in it. Why do you think, well, let me ask you this, actually, do you actually think that people are interested in, in uncovering media bias? Like, do you, part of me wonders if there's just a human nature element to being in your filter bubbles? Like, is this even something that people want to do? It has changed a great deal. And the answer is yes, but not all the time. I'll give, I'll give you a, a really, I think, a strong analogy for this. Okay. I love Mountain Dew and Doritos, but uh -huh. that's not necessarily the meal I want to eat all day long. Yeah. If restaurants use the same business models that the news media is using right now, that's all you would get on your menu. You would get only junk food, only clickbait. You'd only get impulse purchases. You'd have Snicker bars and Twix. I'm a big fan of Kit Kats, uh, like I said, Mountain Dew. And that would be the only thing on your menu. Mm -hmm. And I'm still going to eat that stuff. Actually, I'm a big, I'm from Kentucky originally, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I still love that. I, I try to go there less than once a week, but, well, but well, once a week. <laughs> and, um, and that's fine. But yeah. we also crave and need a meal, like mm -hmm. a, a real meal. And it doesn't have to be kale and you know the kind of stuff that they put in salads i used to think were weeds uh, it can be a full very wonderful meal and that's what we go to restaurants for unfortunately at this stage of the business models most media has gone to the complete junk food world where they're so trying to survive and get that extra dollar and they're all doing the same way that they're all just giving you more junk food, more junk food, more junk food, more junk food, because the way they measure success is one click impulse mm -hmm. purchasing. And they're and they're losing huge amounts of audience and business because people are like saying, well, news no longer is any different than what I read on Twitter or any other place. So it's no biggie. And then the the audience going to regular established news is shrinking mm -hmm. because they stopped doing their job because they got caught up foolishly in this broken business model, or they got caught up in their own wisdom. It's actually both. That when you write and people read and they believe everything you say, people become very arrogant. And they believe when it's left or right, that that's the point of view that's correct. And they see themselves as mm. the arbiters or truth or arbiters of what you should be thinking. And human beings, we want to decide for ourselves. So, there is a great need and desire for people just to know what's going on. And what's really happened recently is a huge shift in that. So even as long as two years ago, Pew Research had done research that said that more than three quarters of people who get news on a weekly basis wanted news that didn't have a specific slant to it. And that was a big jump from the time they did the survey two years before that from what was only like a little bit or a little bit less than two thirds. Why do you and think that jump happened? Data. Why do you think that jump happened? I think it's kind of like Winston Churchill's old quote, America always does the right thing after it's tried everything else. Right. I think or just like human nature in stuff. general, you know, touch yeah. the fire and then you don't touch the fire. Yeah. And people are beginning to recognize and it's, it's more than just being caught up in a news that makes us angry at each other all the time and stressed each other all the time mm -hmm. or just stressed because it's an onslaught. But it's also recognizing that there's that I really do want to be able to understand things. I really do want to be able to understand my world. And we're seeing that that lack of understanding, lack of empathy impacting our families, our kids, where there is suicidal rates higher among teenage kids, particularly girls, and depression rates even more so, like we've never seen before in my lifetime, or I think in, in human history, as far as I know of. I mean, I, I don't know the data from like World War II and other things yeah. when people were really in bad straits, but there's something really, really, really bad happening right now. Yeah. And people are beginning to recognize it. And, and we, it's far more than just politics. But you'll you'll find this interesting because one of the conversations we'd had, I think, John, it was uh, late last year was with a scholar that studied actually communities. And one of the things that I'm sure you're aware of is that the Surgeon General of the United States actually released a report that said that not, not heart disease, you know, not not diabetes, but loneliness is the national epidemic in the United States. And it makes me think again to your point about the technological revolution that we live at this point that is supposedly incredibly connected and yet also incredibly disconnected and 
Yep. It makes me again continue to beg and ask the question of whether or not there's actually demand for nuanced media. Because if there was demand for nuanced media, don't you think that the CNNs of the world would shift their models to see that actually if they shifted a little bit of the way that they covered the news, that it's leading to more retention? That maybe that's just a naive way to think about it, but I'm actually trying to right how to now. align the models. CNN has made huge announcements that they're trying to recover the credibility of being more center, more balanced. Yeah. Politico has done the same thing. Um, a lot of organizations doing it. We actually make most of our money as a company from news organizations like Charter Communications, Spectrum News, we're also working at Newsweek and others who are actually shifting to that more balanced world. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to recover that credibility when you've lost it. And when you are tied into a um, clickbait business model, it's hard to leave it. So there's, yeah, and news media tends to be pretty slow at changing. So they're, they're really struggling because they went all into kind of the addiction business model. Yeah. And as their audience shrinks and as their credibility shrinks and as people's trust in them shrink, it's hard to shift out of that because they have to hold on to it with like really tight it's like it's like if K- it's like if kfc suddenly started selling salads and only sold salads and then people would be like wait what the hell's going on with kfc and then the kfc knows that they got to start selling more salads and yet people are not buying um yeah do you think do you think that uh, maybe this this is not related directly and actually to i don't but, think there's anything yeah. wrong with the kfc and cnn con- continuing doing what they're doing i uh-huh. think that's part of the landscape we are oh, not recommending everybody eat a perfect healthy meal every day that's not what's needed we do need the alternative particularly if it's an issue i care about or particularly if i'm going to make it a daily occurrence i need a little bit of a balanced diet within it i don't think there's anything wrong with extreme left or extreme right i mean i disagree with some of the issues but that's part of the conversation that's part of it we are not all we're all sides we're not center we're not just our way we're always so that you can actually decide for yourself and have the, I mean, we were just came from the Super Bowl. I now live in San Francisco. We really wanted the 49ers to win. I think it's okay that I wanted them to win over the, over the Kansas City Chiefs. I didn't have to be neutral about that. Yeah. We don't have to be neutral about things and lies, but we do need to understand reality or we get trapped and lonely because we don't, we think we have to be a certain way. We think we all have to believe what our group or peer group tells us to believe in, whether it's media or socially oriented. We need to be able to recognize that nuance is actually where the spice of life comes from and permit ourselves and each other to do that. And that gets you out of the loneliness epidemic. That gets us out of this hateful bubbles of where we detest each other because we're different. Yeah. I mean, not to continue the fitness analogy, but I think when uh, I think I might have learned this term from you, but it's 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 the notion of thing about information is an information diet, right? That you know it's all right to you know binge on the CNN a little bit, to to binge on the Fox News a little bit, but also to look at something like All Size, which gives you an understanding of the news. And so let's actually go a little bit to the platform. So I, just today in the morning, I was looking through some of the news stories, and one thing that you'll see on every story is a left, center, right rating. Could you describe a little bit about what that rating actually entails? And when somebody first logs onto a news story, what do they get from looking at that rating? Yeah, that's it's very good to think about and understand why we did it that way. Everybody loves our mm-hmm. bias ratings. You're the first people who do that and patent the way we're doing it. Now lots of people do it, which is great. I think it's wonderful. We're the could, first could you explain the bias ratings? Regular. Could you explain the bias yeah. ratings really quickly? So essentially we have a well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how we do it, but we have sure. a system that really reflects the average judgment of all American people, experts, people in rural America, urban America, uh, left, center, right. We have these blind bias surveys where we have large groups of Americans look at content without knowing who produced it. And they can say, well, you know what? This seems a little bit left, a little bit center, a little bit right. And we do that in lots of different ways. We also have experts look at it in different ways so that we can come up with a rating that basically reflects that if everybody in the U.S. looked at this news article and didn't know who did it, they'd say, in general, that's a little bit left, that's a little bit right, that's a little bit center. So that's our standard. Not us, not a small group of experts internally, but not ignoring that expertise. And people really find that valuable to just to understand that where that particular news source lies so they can interpret a little bit better. But I actually don't think that's the main value of it. 
The main value is that we can then deliver you the breaking story of today. And we could show you how a group on the left covered it, a group on the right covered it, a group on the center covered it. We always show you those different perspectives. And very often, those three headlines will be radically different about the same thing that happened. And what happens is that just by looking at those three different headlines, you suddenly understand what's really going on, even though they're saying different things. In fact, you understand it better if you read one article all the way through because they're just covering it from one perspective. And we even write summaries for people to make it very short and fast so they can quickly get an idea. Oh, if you look at how everybody's covering it, this is what they're saying. This is what they're covering. So I can understand and decide for myself as opposed to being manipulated in either intentionally or, or by mistake by the bias of the one individual writer. So just if we dug into the way that you're doing those bias ratings, it's not some, you know, algorithm or your sort of internal group of people that are coming up and saying, you know, this Fox News article is more right, or this CNN article is more left, or this New York Times article is more center. It's that you're actually surveying and bringing together Americans from different tracks of life to say, you know, what do you think about this? Is there like a sample size? You have a standard sample size of how many people are in these surveys? Do you have a method for how to pick who who it is? Um, just could yeah, you get yeah. a little bit into the details of that? Because I'm sure people are curious. Yeah, I, I love that question because it's a lot of stuff we worked on. Yeah. So our bias ratings have been based on rating that source. And so when we first played with this 11 years ago, when we started, wow. first started working on this, the question was, okay, if I know that your bias is left and mine is right or um, somebody else's is different, if we know that, is that reliable? Because what we wanted to do was as news breaks, we want to show you different perspectives. And our technology back then couldn't really give you different perspectives. You could say pro or con, but couldn't really tell you um, that these different people have different ideas. And so we did the system to really rate the individuals. And yes, we, we have surveys and tests that the individual participants take so that we could see if they're left, center, or right. And then we do normalize the, the results. So we get a lot of people, um, typically 500 or so when we're doing in, an individual blind bias review, but we've done right. lots and lots and lots of blind bias. And that's reviews. usually for like one specific story. Is that right? Um, we do it for a set of stories from like three to five different sources. So it's a okay. longer survey. And they look at a set of stories from one source, which could be an author or a news organization. We do look at news rather than opinions separately, though. A lot of people put those two together, and that's not. Now, a lot of news organizations do have a different bias for their news, as they should, than they do for their opinion. Are you saying my like opinion is not fact? Are you saying yes? That, are you saying are you are you saying that when John Gable says this is what I think about Taylor Swift, that that's not fact? You know, I, I know it's a radical idea, but it is. <laughs> um, they are different things. Um, so, so we do that. And then with that, um, and we, we also have our own team look at it. But every time mm -hmm. our own team looks at it, we always have our team with somebody on the left and from the right and the center. In fact, if you go to our website, our team page, you'll see we actually reveal the political bias of everybody on our team. So we're obscenely transparent. Like we're, Man, we're they, just, mu they must love being level. outed. The team must, yeah. must must love love being love being outed in that way. We're just smart. You got to have a little smart. courage at, within all sides to work here because you're you're open. We're we're very transparent. We show you yeah. we show you it all. And but the great thing about that is by defining that, then when news breaks, I could take something written from the New York Post and the New York Times and maybe the Wall Street Journal or Christian Science Monitor or somebody who's more center on the news. And um, you could see how the three of them covered the same story. And mm -hmm. so immediately we get a broader perspective on what just happened. Immediately you get that nuance. And that's what we do. And now we're working with new technologies that actually replicate that. So we've done that. We, we've posted, I think, over 300,000 different articles in our time. We've had almost 4 million different individual votes from individual people coming to our side about, yes, this is left or right or center. So that's data we look at as well. We, we, we've got a lot well, of data. That's interesting. So people can actually log on to the site and they can actually rate articles themselves as well. So you're, you can also crowdsource people's ratings. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. Now, the crowdsourcing doesn't determine the ratings. We use sure, the crowdsourcing sure. as a way to tell us as kind of an early warning. System. Whether or not your rating is actually right or not. Yeah. yeah. So we have these blind buy surveys, so you can't really game the system that way. Now, but we have open votes. So when people vote and we see that, you know what, most of the people at all sites think that we're wrong. 
about calling the Wall Street Journal news center, but their opinion piece lean right. Um, or calling, we actually were nailed for a long time early on the CNN website about 10 years ago. It was pretty center on the left side of center. And then the, our audience were like pissed off. They said, no, they're way, they're, they're lean left, they're left, because that's where their cable news was at the time. But their mm -hmm. website hadn't really shifted yet. Um, but we saw that data. And when we looked at it, we're like, okay, did we do something wrong? So we go back and look at our data, we look at our analysis, we may redouble our efforts. What normally happens, and we actually see on our site how people vote if they agree with us and don't agree with us. And, you know, a lot of times they agree with us, a lot of times they disagree. When they disagree, normally the average vote among the people who disagree is exactly what we said all along. So, like, uh, we may say this group is lean left and half the people say, no, you're wrong, and it's mm -hmm. way left. The other people say, no, you're wrong, it's to the right of that, and the average is what we do. So it, I bet it's what one of the are frequently come out to. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I can I can already tell one of the things I like to do during the conversations, like when somebody's listening to that, I want to put myself in their shoes. And I can imagine somebody being like, you know, this is a really interesting way to start to decipher and parse the news. And what's also interesting, but I bet as a challenge is that a lot of this probably depends on you curating a pretty ideologically diverse audience, right? Because the moment yeah. I assume all sides starts to be perceived as more conservative or perceived to be more liberal, then naturally what you're probably going to have is more of that lean. How, how are you thinking about protecting against that? How are you thinking about the brand credibility? I mean, the fact that you're already outing the entire team and <laughs> showed where they are means that yes. I can tell that <laughs> credibility and, and trust is a big value, I'm sure, at the company. But how do you protect against that drift? Yeah, it's it's essential because I, I frequently tell the team that credibility is our number one asset, our ability to really let people decide for themselves and not I wish more newsrooms said a that. ministry of truth. Yeah, and <laughs> it actually goes down to that business model, uh, what your role is first. Mm -hmm. What is your number one job? And our number one job is to empower people to decide for themselves. We are not the curators of information for the world. We are not the ministry of truth. We are a tool to empower you. It starts at that different point of view that we, we begin with. In terms of how we do it, that's incredibly important. And I love, I love it when people go deep on that because we've done a lot there. So we have three co-founders, myself, Joan Blades. We basically recreated ourselves as a benefit corporation last year, which is a certain time of corporation. That means that if somebody with a huge check from one left extreme side or the other side comes to our board and says, we want to buy your company, we can say no legally because boards are supposed to maximize profits. But being a benefit corp, we could say, yeah, we'll make money, but we're going to first and foremost follow our mission. Hmm. And if a lot of money means killing our mission, we're just going to say no. So one thing was to set us legally up so we could say no to a lot of money that might pull us one direction or the other. The, the other is that our three co-founders, Joan Blades was the co-founder of MoveOn.org, clearly left progressive from, from Berkeley. She and I did a TED Talk um, years ago, not that long ago, actually, um, where she and I were the opposites because I'm actually from Kentucky. I worked in the 90s or well, the 80s. I worked in Republican politics. I'm lean right, but did that for a living way, way, way back decades ago and still am lean right. And our technology guy, Scott, he's totally center, or more accurately, he's sometimes left, sometimes right, depending on the issue. Um, but we, even our founders, which are our three board members, are different politically. And then when you look at our team, you'll see that our, when we release anything on our site that's more than just a couple of paragraphs, we have people on left, center, and right reviewing and talking about it. And we even reveal with each article how that happened and who it was. The final piece that we do to ensure that is something we're going to be announcing soon, which is we're going to start raising equity online as crowdfunding, something we'll announce with WeFunder. We're not doing that yet, but that will enable regular people, not just big VCs or big whatever. We haven't, been, we haven't taken any VC money yet, but we need to get more money to grow. So we're going out to our audience first, letting them become investors in our company so they can have a voice and make sure it's even. The final thing is that if you look at our website, we do surveys on our website all, all the time. Our last survey had a, when we asked them on our side, where are you politically? 
we had 20% Democrats and 20% Republicans and all the rest were either independents or something else. It was slightly more right in this survey because some of the people thought they were slightly more right, like a couple percentage points that left. In the past, it's been different. But even our audience reflects that balance where you have a very nice bell curve. Do you have data by any chance on age? Is I'm curious if if the if there's a correlation based on age and whether or not people are pursuing certain types of information or whether you're seeing, you know, younger people more interested in seeing the bias in media, less interested, maybe you're seeing older folks have more traction. Can you share a little bit about what the age looks like and whether or not folks are absolutely along lines? It's been very interesting because most news organizations have like their audience tends to be politically one or the other. We're mixed. Our age group is remarkably mixed, too, where it's pretty flat across the age groups. There's a little spike around millennials. Um, And part of that, I think, is but it's like the younger audience is is as big as the older audience. In some places you have a group where you like have a lot of people on the older edge. It's like there and younger not on our site. And we, mm-hmm. and sometimes when you look at our website, we definitely want to continue to evolve the UI, but it actually is designed to be very good for people who are not internet savvy as well as the people who are. So it's just mm-hmm. really brain dead simple. That's why it looks like a new site, even though there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. It's, it's, a, we're, we're working for all those age groups. So based on, uh, the information that you just described and based on the fact that you're building this trust, I actually want to run a quick experiment with you. Um, I wasn't thinking about doing this until, until you went through all these different ratings. So the fact that all sides uses a bias rating left, center, right, I want to ask you the news outlet and I want you to tell me what all sides prescribes. And you can say, if you don't, if you don't know the rating, you can just say, I don't can know. Can I look it up want, and answer yes. you? If you want a second, I you can pull it up in the news. And and while while for, I, I will for cheat those and see if I can get my list. <laughs> you should you should cheat. We want the accurate information. But for for the context, as John is pulling this up, for those that are watching on YouTube, John is actively looking up the site. For those that are listening, get on YouTube so you can watch John looking up the website. And just for context, what we're about to do, if you're tuning in, you're like, why is Manu just rambling while he has a guest on the show? It's because what I've asked John to do is I want him to use the all sites tool to describe what is the bias rating for different news outlets. And what I'm going to ask him is, what is CNN? What is Fox, et cetera? And I'm curious to see where the bias breaks down. So let me know when you're ready, John. I, I'm ready. And I'll even give you, on our site, when you click on something, there's a lot mm-hmm. of detail about how we came to that number. We show you all the analysis as well. And the way that you come to that number is go go look at allsites.com and you can find these ratings yourself. But Again, what we're doing is we're going to do an experiment. I'm going to ask John for an outlet. He's going to give the bias rating based on what all sides describes it as. So the first one we've got is CNN. Okay, so we have the CNN online news versus the opinion is two different things. So we call their news right now as lean left and their opinion is full left. We actually have numbers as well. If you get New York Times, okay, I'll go faster. New York Times, news, lean left, opinion, far left. Fox News. Fox is um, both the news and opinion are right. At one point, Fox News, online news is actually lean right. So that's been kind of on the edge of lean right, right. It really depends on whether you're, you're watching their news, whether you're reading their news program or whether you're reading something like something from Tucker, because that's obviously very different. Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal, I know this off the top of my head. The news is absolutely middle. They have been very consistent um, on that, and their opinion is lean right. And they've been consistent about that for many, many, many years. Last one, The Atlantic. Uh, The Atlantic, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's left. So anybody that's like, what did we just do? If you actually tune into the first part of the show, we actually went through what the bias rating involves. So if you're like, "Why? How's John pull?" It? I disagree. The Atlantic is center. Well, if you disagree, we just talked about actually how these bias ratings work, and so it's a, it's an interesting exercise. And I'm sure anybody can log on and do this. I, I I'm wondering, do you do this with podcasts by any chance, John? Yet is is that is that we have that's coming in our future. Podcast? That's coming to our future. We will be doing that. Okay. We're not doing that quite yet. And by the way, I should have told you when the community agreed and disagreed because I have that up here as well. Um, okay, they, well, did, well, they do they, agree. Uh, but anyway, did, did the did, did the did the community? I just want to ask for two specifically. Did the community agree on CNN and did the community agree on Fox? 
Um, the community agreed on CNN for online news, 65,000 agreed and 56,000 disagreed. And they completely agree with the opinion where 39,000 agreed with the opinion being left while only like 9,000 disagreed. Um, and you said Fox, um, the community agrees with that as well. Um, just to buy a little bit about the online news, it's, it's gone back and forth a little bit, but for the opinion, Absolutely. 36,000 agreed with that uh, being right opinion and only 8,000 disagreed. So I I, I appreciate you uh, both humoring me, but also the fact that it was such an easy way for you to quickly flip open the tool and see where the ratings are, I think just explains like there, there are ways for people to shift through the news. And the hope that I get from this conversation is like, there is actually a way for us to be more media literate. It's not that we're like beholden to the algorithms, we can actually empower ourselves. And, and as you said, there's an information diet that is built into this. And I know the millennial audience is about to bristle at me, but the fact that you said there's a spike in the millennials using all sites makes total sense because those guys are into dieting and all different aspects of life. And they, they're like, let me also pick up the information diet. Makes a ton of sense. So naturally what I've got to ask you is now that we've set you up as like the nutritional scientist for information <laughs> and news, what, what is the information diet that John Gable would prescribe to the average person that's just trying to get a relatively unbiased understanding of the news. It's more than just a diet. So you understand the world and a very diet, but it's also how often you eat, if you will. So a lot of stress, there's been a lot of studies about people stress around the news and understanding. And so some people are like getting news feeds all day long, all day long. And, and all the media companies want to do that because it means more clicks, more advertising dollars, and it's great for them, but it's bad for us as human beings. Um, don't check the news more than once or twice a day. I don't think you'll hear a lot of media people saying that because they want you to do it, but it's actually not healthy. Do it once or twice a day. There's also a lot of data that says that if you do see the news from left, center, and right, your stress level actually goes down. That when you see it next to each other, in fact, you'll notice that on our side, you, you mentioned how you see that. We do that very intentionally. Some people thought, well, you can choose if you want to see the news on the right or the left. We actually don't give you that choice. We make you see news from the three different sides. So you can dig deeper in any way you want. You can go much deeper on the left or the center or the right or anybody else. But we always quite intentionally make sure you see at least what the other point of view is, even if you're just snickering at it, on the way as you're understanding the news, because that's a part of understanding the world. And it also reduces our stress levels as well. It, it increases nuance, increases understanding and it reduces stress. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I'd recommend is make, make it a, a regular but controlled diet, not something where you're on the edge of your seat all day long. That's not good for you. And you got to get truth to chance. And so the most breaking news isn't always the most useful thing. So don't, don't binge your Mountain Dew people. But I will say that you still have not answered this with the question of, are there specific outlets that, that you oh. might recommend? Are there specific? Oh, I answered it wrong. I'm sorry. No, no, um, you did not answer it wrong. You actually answered it even more effectively. You answered it like a real doctor, which is you said, let's get to the root cause of the issue, not just which outlet to look at. But my Gen Z, you know, 30 second attention span brain still wants to know what are the outlets that John Gable would recommend that I, I view for, for relatively biased, balanced diet? I would avoid any one outlet. Um, I think you need to get beyond that. You just have to recognize that. If you're in New York City, the great combination is New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And if you really want to do it, it's New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and New York Post. That's really the diet you should have in New York City, is those three. And that takes a lot of time. So that's why we do a lot of that work for you. Um, and you can find it other ways. But it, I recommend something local because you want to know what's going on locally. And depending on where you are, that's more likely to be lean left than it is lean right. It's not always that case, but it's more likely to be that case. And if so, you need to add something a little bit more center or lean right to your consumption. And I do think the Wall Street Journal is fabulous. And even people in the media who are on the left, everybody agrees who's in the business, they understand the Wall Street Journal does a very good job at news. They may disagree with the opinion page, which is fine. That is an opinion page. But the news just straight out, they, they really rock. I think Newsweek is quite good. They changed over time. They're, they're a little bit more, they show a little bit more the left and the right, a little bit farther out, but they show a good balance of the two. They're a little bit more, um, yeah. and, they, they, and they go a little farther, <laughs> but they show both. Yeah. Newsweek is actually one of the, their, their CEO, Dave 
Pragad is actually somebody that I want to talk to soon because they they're an interesting outlet in that they've actually I mean they've existed for I think a hundred years and they've evolved over time and and so it's fascinating to see that as a case study. the The last set of questions I have is I can is actually about whether or not bias is even the right access to think about this. So. You know, I, I'm sure there's a philosophical discussion debate that you, you guys have internally all the time. And for the audience, the context of the question is I can imagine you're sitting there right now. Let's say you really love the New York Times and you say that, actually, I really like the New York Times, but I don't really care whether they're biased left or right, because I just care whether or not they tell the facts, the truth. And I'm sure a lot of newsrooms say, well, sure, all sides rights is left, right, whatever. It's not our fault that the fa facts break that way or this way. And so I wonder, and I, I'm curious what your response is to whether or not media bias is the right way to construct your information diet, or if it should be built on other elements like facts and objectivity. The tough thing about facts and objectivity, people have tried to rate that. And so what we've discovered over years is that if the facts support the agenda or the bias perspective of the writer, you'll get them. If they do not, they won't be covered or they'll be missed, sometimes accidentally, sometimes on purpose. That the credibility of a source really has more to do with whether the numbers match their point of view. It is people on the left and the right spread misinformation, even the most credible ones. New York Times, credible source. They um, wrote that um, during the riot in January, whatever that date was, in the Capitol that people killed um, security officers. That did not happen. And it was clear it did not happen from day one. Somebody had a heart attack the next day who was there, but nobody was killed or murdered or anything like that. That just didn't happen. And it was created, that story was created in the New York Times because they believed a couple of people they lied to were there and spreading misinformation. They didn't pull it down and never really completely retracted it. Um, mm -hmm. There are too many examples of that, unfortunately. And there's and on the right, people, and it's not just that. You can be completely factually accurate and make your story every day about how we shouldn't have much confidence in the election system. Because there are factual things that are of, of concern. There is fraud. There's more noted, there's more um, evidence and hard evidence of actual fraud than there was of voter um, access and people being denied access. But depending on what news you're reading, you're more worried about people being denied access to vote or you're more mm -hmm. concerned about fraud. There was enough fraud that we can show that changed the last election, but there is fraud. And so if you just talk about the facts about there was fraud and talk about how all these rules change, you can easily believe some things. Or if you only talk about the other side and you're missing the nuance, there are concerns about some things that happen there that we can tighten up so everybody has confidence in elections. Hmm. And there are both parties who are trying to get people overly concerned about one narrative or the other because those other guys are evil. You need to watch yourself because those other guys are evil. So they use it to divide us. Um, hmm. It's not just that you're saying things are factual. It's a matter of if you're using facts, picking the facts you want to share, intentionally or unintentionally, just to support your narrative mm -hmm. and leaving out all the people who are at the border who are suffering or leaving all the people at the border mm -hmm. who wouldn't have been there if we had different policies or the people suffering in the city. I'm still amazed at what I see as a almost a comfort or acceptance of like the homelessness in San Francisco or the people dying from overdose. And we get very, 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 very upset about three or four people being upset, you know, it's something that seems very minor to me. Taylor Swift is wonderful, but I don't think she's as interesting as important news as people dying in my city because the drug overuse and homelessness is is out of control. And I'm not just speaking on San Francisco. You find other issues. There's plenty of issues. I actually think the problems in education are way underreported. Yeah. So if, if I hear you correctly, and obviously there's some interesting facts you just threw out, like you said, the New York Times reported something about officers, uh, about about deaths at the Capitol, and yet that did not necessarily happen. Or you reported, or you mentioned, you know, this notion that uh, there are actually more stories than not. And I'm obviously not necessarily going to fact check those pieces. But what's interesting about what you're talking about is you're saying that facts don't exist in a vacuum. That e even in the news, the person that's writing the story has a specific 
angle or objective. And that whether really it's conscious or not, it's not always conscious. And those facts you're saying are going to be in some way or the other conscious or not going to be used in a way and outlined in a way or left out in a way that furthers that specific argument. So absolutely. And also which stories are covered in the first place uh -huh. is a huge piece. So part of what we do at all sides, it's not just left, center, right. There are other kinds of biases or, or, yeah. or sections of perspective, but it's also what's being covered. What do you think is important news? And that is very different on the left and right in different news organizations. Part of what we do is sometimes we bring out news that was really big on one side or one group that wasn't covered by anything else. And we'll make sure everybody sees that news mm. story. So then I, I finally have a question about vision, which is that let's say that we grant you that the best way to construct your information diet is around thinking about media bias and importantly, thinking about how frequently or infrequently you're consuming the news. Let's say that's right. Now imagine a world in which every person in the United States is using all sides as a way to balance their diet, right? Let's say you punch that golden ticket and that vision comes to reality. What is materially different about that world? Why do you think that that would be a good thing? First of all, you don't need to get anywhere close to that to change society. Hmm. So if you talk to academics about what it takes to change society, they talk about movements and like the women's movement, the right to vote or different movements over time. And you'll see, they'll tell you that when you get about three and a half percent, only three and a half percent of that populace engaged in that movement, every time you hit that critical mass, culture changes, policies change, you're essentially successful. And we have 330 million Americans. And if you just look at voters or adults, you're only talking where somewhere between five and a half million and 10 and a half million people. That's a very doable number for all sides and our friends throughout the bridging community can, can reach to enable them to actually see different perspectives and decide for themselves. Now, so that's all you need to have that impact. Now, what will that impact be? Mm -hmm. So first thing is, you talk to Joan, I'll actually give other people in my, her first thing, my co-founder, Joan Blades, she would say that the policy she cares the most about, she's really all uh, very concerned about climate change. Then we can actually talk about them and actually solve problems or on the border. A lot of solutions are out there, but we can't get there because we're not even permitted. We're not permitting our politicians to talk with each other. Because we're, we're in our bubbles. Yeah. And it's also, we're not, we're, we're so extremely solidified our bubbles we don't even permit conversation across differences and yet even on issues like abortion there's actually more we agree with than disagree there's a lot that people agree with when you look at survey and survey about what kind of specific rules they apply like 70 80 percent agree on a lot of it but we can't seem to do that because we're too busy yelling at each other or, or the politicians are too busy and, and people raising money are too busy emphasizing the differences so that they can get more clicks, more views, more money, but not solve the problem. Because if we solve the problem um, or make it better, it becomes less of a money maker for them. Hmm. So part of it is getting beyond that, is just solving some of those problems. But the other thing, which we talked about earlier, is that the everyday lives and stress level we carry changes. When we, I, that low, like this, I can't prove as well. There's a lot of data that suggests this, but um, when you look at the angst society's suffering right now, I can't be myself because I'm afraid I'm not going to fit in my my peer group well enough. We're forced to be a certain way, and therefore, even if I have friends, I'm kind of lonely because I can't be honest about who I am or what I really think. That's a societal psychological epidemic of a kind and being able to disagree and being able to disagree health health in a healthy way and be able to appreciate that you and i disagree on something but actually appreciate each other and what you're hoping to gain or where i'm hoping to gain is usually the same thing just different ways of getting there that makes you and me both feel more accepted to each other and so i think the i mean i'm going on a little bit the farther end of it but this is all the science points to that that these are tied together, tied together seriously, not just about our ability to manage ourselves or keep a healthier, more vibrant, active, effective democratic society, but even a healthier community and families. And I know a lot of the folks listening to this, I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show. The reason why 
we call the show the hopeful majorities because I do think there is a majority of people out there that are not actually exhausted. I think they're just disappointed in, in the system. And importantly, they're looking for avenues. And I think they're hopeful for options. And to your point, there's this whole outrage industrial complex that whose currency is the junk food and is the, 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 you know, the, the diet Coke and the, and the Coca-Cola and the bad sucrose and the, aspartame. don't forget Mountain Dew. Sorry. And, I got had Mountain Dew in there. Mountain, Mountain Dew. Yes. And Doritos, <laughs> you know, don't forget the Doritos. And the problem is that as a result, it, it, it sacrifices nuance. And the entire objective of the show is how do you actually build nuance? And importantly, how do you make it interesting, exciting? You know, in some ways, our challenge, John, I, we talk about this a lot, is that we're trying to sell broccoli or dried kale to the American people. And now some folks, you know, might be total suckers for dried kale. The fact is the majority of people are not. And the question becomes, how do you dress it up, make it interesting, make it exciting? And so I appreciate I actually the- disagree with your, your point here. Okay. I actually don't think it's broccoli and kale. Okay. I actually think it's like that really good meal I enjoyed, um, like that great restaurant I went to, and I really enjoyed it. And maybe I didn't have broccoli and kale in it. Maybe I just had, um, I mean, if you're in San Francisco, it might be sushi, it might be steak. Um, it might be green beans or, or some kind of Caesar salad. I like Caesar salads. It might be uh-huh. that. Um, and what we're finding is that even in human relationships, they tend to be stronger and more rewarding when we appreciate each other for who we actually are and appreciate the nuance. It's more of a challenge of slowing down to consume and taste. That's interesting. As opposed to rushing to the sugar high of every moment. That's really what it's about. We we are unfortunately nearing the end of artificial time constraints, but I do want to actually ask you a follow-up there, which is an interesting nuance. So, the way that I think about diagnosing this problem of polarization and division is, again, part of the challenge is that I actually do think most people want it, but they think and want it by saying it, they want to have healthy conversations, they want to have dialogues, they want to consume media, and they want to do it in a way that's nuanced and productive. But it seems so oftentimes, some people say it feels kumbaya. It feels like let's hold hands. It's not. It's not. It's not tangible and concrete enough. Some people, I think, will level the critique that it's. It's that it's not productive in different ways. Other folks will say that it is like dried broccoli. It sounds like it's good for me, and yet, you know, I just don't eat broccoli. You know, and so as a result, even though the nutritional scientists will say this is good for you, this is good for you, we still have an obesity crisis. But one thing that you pointed out is that you're saying a core element of the way that you're diagnosing the problem is that it's about actually slowing down, that it's not just that, you know, we have to think about the product. It's that you're saying that we as people just need to slow down the way that we're consuming and not be on all the time because being on all the time is actually driving us crazy. Is that is that accurate? Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, and I think that it's, I think it's that and don't buy into the popular narrative that's supported by money that nobody wants this. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, when we have conversations, we do them online and we do them for people left, center, right. A lot of people are worried, but from our test, 87 to 95% of people want to do it again. They want it. It was an incredible experience. Mm. And, and when you make that analogy to like the speed of life, I think all of us can remember a time when we just slowed down a little bit, spent a little bit more time with that book or that article, or that person. We're like, wow, that was really awesome. That was really special. We love that. We crave that. And when we have that, we want more of that. We, I don't think our job so much at all sides is to convince people of this better thing. We just have to give them the opportunity to have it and taste it and then enjoy it. And then it, it naturally feeds upon itself. We've spent no money on advertising and we've had as many as 22 million views a month. We've, it's grown very organically. We're looking to raise money to be able to get to another level, but that kind of success with that little bit of money makes no logical sense. It's because Mm -hmm. there's such an overwhelmed unmet demand for something better than what we're being force fed right now. I agree with that. I think there's tremendous silent demand. I think to your point, it's about getting people to taste it. And I guess what I think a lot about is how do you get people to taste it? Are people inherently skeptical of the taste? Do or do they not buy it? Or as you're, I think, positing, um, they just need to be given the opportunity. And I think that's a fascinating, fascinating question to think through. And in fact, if you're listening to this, you're like, darn, this conversation just got spicy and interesting. There's actually a whole slew of episodes we did, John, 
uh, in late 23, where we had on a bunch of culture change makers, so filmmakers, we had some cultural folks who talked about how do you get things to spark on culturally? How do you get things to get mainstream traction? So I'm again only cutting this conversation off because of artificial time constraints and because the algorithm is going to punish me if our episode goes over one hour and 15 minutes. They're punishing nuance. But yes, um, there's a whole slew of conversations there. Last question I got for you. There's a question I ask everybody, no matter who they are, which is a question about why. Why do you actually do any of this? And you, I think you actually touched on a little bit about why you care. But if you were to compact it for our audience um, and, and sort of try to articulate maybe your purpose behind why you really care about all sides and this work, what is your thought or answer to that question? At a very personal level, since college, I've been trying to find ways how I can have some kind of impact. And I started in politics and I used a lot of technology and I went to Microsoft and Netscape and I discovered that I had more impact in the world through technology that people use than I did by working full-time to impact the world in politics. And that's really what I've come to embrace that the thing that I, John Gable, can do to help society be a more effective democratic marketplace and therefore solve all these different problems better is actually what I'm doing right now. It's developing technologies and systems and business models that really reward and include more people in the ability to hear each other and the ability to understand the world better and understand each other better. Um, there's a quote by David Bowie, I'm a big David Bowie fan, um, that growing old, I'll get it a little bit wrong, is the the wonderful process where you get to become the person you were always meant to be. I feel like I'm doing that with all sides. And I really feel like I this is an opportunity to really have an impact that will outlast outlast me by far. John, thanks for talking about all sides and the whole for majority. Thanks. It's fun. Thank you so much, John, for that conversation. I hope you, this conversation is all about you. This conversation is about giving you a potential tool a potential avenue through which to view the news. I think it's so interesting to think about our media as an information diet. And as you know, part of your information diet is podcasts. And one of those podcasts is this thing called the whole majority that you're listening to. And the fact is that there's a lot of stuff out there. This is the place for us to have productive, nuanced, honest conversations with people that are interesting in changing the world in unique ways. And importantly, it's a place where you're not going to be judged for views. You're going to be challenged, but challenged productively. And that's what we have to be asking for every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. If you're on Spotify and Apple, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, leave a like, subscribe. We're building the hopeful majority, you and I together. We're trying to fight outrage, build nuance, and I'll see you next week.